Bibles to the book of Psalms. This morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 100. The last time I got to speak, we were in Psalm 1. I'm doing Psalm 100 and then I'm going to start filling in the blanks between 1 and 100. The message I'm entitling this morning is Sing a Song of Worship. Psalm 100, verses 1 through 5. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the privilege of worship. Lord, we know that it's impossible to have worship without covenant to participate in the new and the everlasting covenant of trusting Jesus for forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to you and the hope of the future. And so, Heavenly Father, again, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you will speak to hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that there would be, perhaps for some, a new appreciation and for others, a greater appreciation of what it means to worship. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And the saints said, Amen. Psalm 100, the psalmist writes, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It's he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. You know, since my retirement, I've had the great privilege of being a guest speaker at churches all across America. And uh, it's kind of hard for me to think of myself as a guest preacher here. But there once was a visiting minister who filled the pulpit for a very famous preacher. His name was Henry Ward Beecher. And you may not know that name, but in his day, he was a celebrity preacher. He was a rock star preacher. And there was a large audience that had gathered to hear Beecher. And when it was discovered that Beecher was not preaching that morning, some people started heading for the exits. And the visiting pastor stood and called out, All who have come today to worship Henry Ward Beecher may withdraw from the sanctuary. All who have come to worship the Lord can keep their seats. Nobody left. What's great is we've come here to worship the Lord. And in this short psalm, we discover that worship is marked by simplicity and gratitude. The longest words in the psalm are thanksgiving, everlasting, generations. 
The language isn't exaggerated or flowery or complicated. The words themselves are like giant shipping containers that are full of cargoes of wonder. And even though we're living in a time where there might be some supply supply chain issues, guess what? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that for those who will come to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, there are no supply chain issues. God is present. And so the plain facts of worship, according to the psalmist, are much more impressive than the mystical subjective Feelings demanded by a culture who rely on their feelings. The culture that says God is present if I feel his presence. Um, I am worshiping God if I feel like I'm worshiping God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, the psalm, this psalm or this song is an invitation to worship the Lord. It is, in fact, a song of praise and thanksgiving. Many of you know that there's only one reason why I didn't become a famous singer. I have no talent whatsoever. But a lot of people don't let that stand in their way. And at least there are a few Geraces who can sing. This song is, in fact, a song that was sung by the Jewish people in the second temple period, and it was used in connection with what was called the peace offering or the sacrifice of thanksgiving. It was a thank offering. So in effect, it was given as a part of gratitude experienced for receiving the mercies of God. And those of us familiar with the Levitical offerings are familiar with the burnt offering and the grain offering and the sin offering and the trespass offerings. And finally, the peace offerings, which were offered to the Lord. These offerings represented a relationship with God, friendship with God. Again, it was offered for divine thanksgiving, for help and blessing. And so we worship the Lord in true expression of thanksgiving and praise for all that God has done for us in Christ. And so one of the things that you should be aware of and understand is that worship of God requires covenant. When Jesus was in John the fourth chapter and he was speaking with the woman at the well, he said, those who worship the Lord must worship him in spirit and in truth. Absent the spirit and absent the truth, there is no true worship. Jesus said, no one, no one can come to the father except by me. And so the psalmist says, he is our God. Not simply God, he is our God. We are the people, we are the people of his pasture. We're not just wild goats grazing in the grass of God's natural revelation. And for those of you who are somewhat older, you might remember 
the 60s and the 70s where grazing in the grass was a gas, baby, can you dig it? <laughs> this mutual belonging to one another, the mutual business of belonging to one another, that was the foundation of the covenant. According to the Bible, you belong to him. And of course, the Lord belongs to you. In the book of Jeremiah, we read, I will be their God and they will be my people. The writer of Hebrews picks up that exact quote in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10. And so this psalm is placed after the theocratic and coronation psalms which anticipate Messiah as king. John Phillips points out that this psalm is prophetic. And it anticipates the coming of the Messiah. The day when the Messiah will rule, rule from sea to sea and shore to shore. So the setting is millennial. The future earthly reign of the returning Messiah, Jesus. The, the occasion of this psalm is the coronation of the king who is both priest and king. So it anticipates a time in the future, in the millennial reign, where the Messiah comes and the gates of Jerusalem are flung open wide and the courts of the Gentiles are open to all, to Jew and Gentile, to slave and free. The psalmist invites us to approach the Lord in harmony in verse 1, in happiness in verse 2. Who is this king? The psalmist says, he's God. He's Elohim. He is Jehovah. We're to consider his person in verse 3, his power in verse 3, his purpose in verse 3. And so how do we express our love and appreciation? We do so with thanksgiving and praise in verse 4, in truth in verse 4, with great thoughtfulness in verse 5. And so the psalmist begins with, how do we approach the Lord? In verses 1 and 2, it says, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. How do we approach the Lord? With a joyful noise. One translation says that. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. You should be grateful for that, especially for the people sitting behind you and in front of you. The Bible doesn't say you have to sing on key. It just says you have to sing. Now I want you to ask the text a question. Why? Why? Why should you make a joyful noise? Why should you shout all you lands? And the reason is because the nightmare of sin has come to an end. The people have come out of the tribulation period. The false prophet and the antichrist are now in hell, rotting in hell. The dust is starting to settle. The clouds have opened wide. Jesus has returned. And guess what? Everything wrong is about to be made right. Yeah, you should, yeah. 
Now, again, the context is that the cruel, cruel world in which we live is going to now be taken over by Jesus. The immediate application, of course, is for you. The issue of sin is over with. Jesus Christ has come. He's given his life as a ransom and his sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. But in the context, the return of Jesus to rule and reign means that all the nations can finally experience peace. With the Supreme Court ruling this last week, there was what was called last night a night of rage. Because there's a growing group of people who think you should have the right to kill your unborn child for any reason or no reason at all. But the night of rage, of rebellion and wickedness, of disobedience to God throughout all the world will one day come to an end. And by the way, the word translated lands, where it says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all you lands, it, it translates a word that would probably more appropriately be translated edits, the, it, the earth. And so the idea is the lands are the people groups of the lands. The kingdom of Jesus is global. And so the invitation is to North America and South America, to Asia and Africa and the island nations. These are the lands of the earth. All the lands of the earth are invited to come to Jerusalem and worship the king. In the early 70s, there was a song by a group called the New Seekers. Again, some of you are old enough to remember. They would come on TV and they would sing, I'd like to teach the world to sing. Yes, yeah, some of you remember in perfect harmony. But they really wanted you to buy a Coke. That's what they wanted to do. This song is God's song of harmony, inviting all the world to come and sing the same song. What is that song? Jesus has come. The Messiah has come. His rule and his reign is now going to take place. It is not an invitation to buy Jesus. It's not an invitation to buy into Jesus. What it is, is an invitation for the world itself to celebrate salvation. And remember, in the immediate context, it means the rescue by God of the world. And so, it says, make, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence. And by the way, that word presence translates a Hebrew word which means face. In other words, the essence of true worship is to come into the presence of the Lord. And so all of the Bible, all of the Bible, in the biggest picture possible, 
becomes a type, if you will, of the absence of God and the presence of God, the absence of God and the presence of God. And if you've ever in your life said, I'm not feeling God's presence or I'm not sensing God's presence in this song. You don't have to feel his presence or sense his presence because Jesus is there. The idea is the essence of worship is to come into his presence to appear before his face in adoration. Do you think it's going to be different in the millennial kingdom, in the future, where we know that according to the New Testament, Jesus said, where two or more are gathered, I'm there in the midst. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. According to the New Testament, Jesus is present, whether you feel him or not. And in this song, he is literally, bodily, physically, present, in, in Jerusalem. Now, this becomes an important point. In the ancient world of the Old Testament, the Jewish people worshipped at a distance. Many of you who are familiar with the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's particularly in the New Testament um, uh, Second Temple, you understand that there was a court, if you will, for Gentiles, and there was a court for women, and then there was a court for men, and there was a court for priests, and then there was an inner court that only the high priest could enter, and then he could only enter once a year. The large portion of humanity, the walls of separation were great, and the distance was profound, and so in order for true worship to take place, it had to take place in Jerusalem. Sacrifice for sin was made. But then Calvary changed all that. The cross of Jesus changed all that. The sacrifice of Jesus, both according to the New Testament and the writer of Hebrews, provides access to this true and living God. And so the sacrifice of Jesus provides access to God and worship of God. In the book of Numbers chapter 28 verses 1 and 2 we read, quote, the Lord said to Moses, give these instructions to the people of Israel. The offerings you present to me by fire on the altar, they are my food and they are very pleasing to me. See to it that they are brought at the appointed times and offered according to my instruction. In other words, the Jewish people would set aside a time. There was a series of times where they would have the feast of the Passover, the feast of the tabernacle. There would be a series of, of feasts. So the whole point would become take advantage of all of the opportunities that you have to worship the Lord, to express praise and gratitude. So worship required a preparation of heart. In a very real sense, the Lord in this song is the song. The Lord is the song and we're his singers. Colton Dixon has a popular song where he sings, 
You are the song. You are the song I'm singing. You are the air. You are the air I'm breathing. You are the hope. You are the hope I'm needing. He's the song that we sing. And so there are several elements of worship that we glean even from these short verses. Number one, in verse one, shout joyfully. Number verse two, serve gladly. At the end of verse two, come singing. Shout joyfully, serve gladly, come singing. In Psalm chapter 81, verses one through three, we're invited, it says, sing aloud to God our strength. What's interesting about that, sing aloud. You might be thinking, I can sing in my heart because I don't want to annoy the person next to me. But the Bible gives you permission to sing aloud to God our strength. The psalmist says in Psalm 81, make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. And so we raise a song, we strike the timbrel. The the psalmist says, the pleasant heart with the lute, sound the trumpet for a sacred feast when the moon is new, when the moon is full. And so what it's basically saying is, at every possible opportunity, come together, worship the Lord, take advantage of every opportunity to worship and sing and praise. And so the holidays or the holy days, the feast days were that opportunity to remember the miracles that God had accomplished in the life of the people and the nation. And so David, by the way, it was King David who brought instruments into the worship service in the temple in 1 Chronicles chapter 25. And so King David, he would bring in the harp. He would bring in the timbrel. That he, he would bring in the instruments so that you could make noise, if you will. And so it was David who brought worship and song together. And then, it, and then in verse 3, look what it says, how we apprehend the Lord. Know that the Lord, the psalmist says, he is God. It's he who made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Why should we worship the king? According to the psalmist, because of who he is and what he does and how he's done it. We apprehend, that means to lay hold of. We begin to lay hold of, we we grasp. We lay hold of his person and his power and his purpose for our lives. And so when you read the words, know that the Lord, he is God, it literally translates in the Hebrew, Jehovah is Elohim. Jehovah is Elohim. The first great lesson to be learned in Christ's millennial kingdom Jesus is Jehovah. He's Elohim. The king who has come. The king who has come. He's God. He is the God who took on a second nature, a human nature. He has come to the earth. He has lived the life that you could never live. He's died the death that you deserve. He has risen from the dead. 
And because he has risen from the dead, God himself, God himself has created a mechanism whereby your sin can be forgiven. You can be exonerated. You can be brought back to life. You can have a future. This is going to come maybe as a shock to some of you, but I hope not. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you'll sing this song. In Jerusalem. Literally. I hope in the not too distant future. You'll see him. Face to face. The basic truth. This basic truth. That Jesus is God. Is the foundation of worship. Remember worship is impossible without covenant. And covenant is impossible without Jesus. In the rich revelation of the Old Testament, we learn that Jesus is the creator. This revelation is repeated in the New Testament in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, Paul writes that Jesus made everything, and everything exists because Jesus made it. You can be right about a lot of things, but you've heard me say repeatedly, you can't be wrong about Jesus. If you get Jesus wrong, it doesn't matter what you get right. The Lord God gave Abraham a son, Isaac, and Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, Judah, Judah, David. And so the worship of God Apart from Christ, listen carefully, is impossible, according to the Bible. The worship of God is fundamentally an encounter with the true and living God. And so when you come, quote unquote, to church, and hopefully when you come, it's to experience the reality that there's a God who created you, who loves you, who's forgiven you. And so the next thing we learn is that, look what it says, God has made us and, and not we ourselves. in verse 3. The Lord is the creator. We're not the product of random chance evolution. We are not the product of a social or a cultural construct. Not we ourselves. You are not a self-made man or woman. In the ultimate sense of the word. The primary and immediate meaning in the text. I'm going to suggest to you. Seems to apply to Israel as a nation. And so when the psalmist is singing the song. When he says you made us. I think the primary meaning is that God called Abraham and Abraham has Isaac and Isaac Jacob and then Judah and then David. It is God who created the nation of Israel. It's God who created this mechanism whereby a Messiah could come into the world. That the world, according to Isaiah, was in darkness 
And then a light appeared, the light of the Messiah. And so the Lord God began the nation with a single individual, Abraham. And then again, God gave Abraham a son and that son a son who would turn into the 12 tribes and the 12 tribes would go into Egypt. They would become a nation. They would be reduced to bondage and slavery. And then they would be set free. They would be brought to Canaan. They would be made a nation. It's a matter of historical reality that in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed And the Jews are scattered throughout the planet earth. But then you see this amazing thing happening. The Jews return to Israel. Jesus is going to come back. And he's not going to rule and reign from Los Angeles or Portland or Kiev or Moscow or Washington, D.C. or Denver, Colorado. He's going to go to Jerusalem. The tribes are going to gather again. And I want you to just think about this for just a moment. When this song was written and sung, the nation had been uprooted and scattered. The first temple was destroyed in 586 by Babylon. God would bring that nation back and root them in the land of Once again, and so the power of God, the power of God to preserve his people and protect his people would be demonstrated in their remarkable history, the Jewish people, the preservation of this people. And so that's why one translation of this song reads, he made us and his we are. I like that. When you're a mom and a dad, sometimes I like to say, I like to quote the scripture to my children. We made you. You belong to us. That's why I talk about my children, my grandchildren. In one sense, I take this to mean Jesus, Jehovah, made the Jewish people. In the New Testament, it says he came into his own, but his own did not receive him, but there will come a time when the Jewish people will recognize him. They will realize that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so the psalmist sings, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The sweet psalmist of Israel, David, recognized that fact in Psalm 23. You know it by heart. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord Jesus declared that he was in fact the good shepherd and the true shepherd. The Lord Jesus is both shepherd of Israel but also shepherd of the church. In John chapter 10 verse 16, Jesus said, There shall be one flock and one shepherd. The shepherd of Israel. And the shepherd of everyone who's not Israel. The Lord Jesus spoke of the prophet Zechariah in the smiting of the shepherd, the scattering of the flock in Matthew 26. And then he quotes Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And few things, by the way, are more vulnerable than sheep or defenseless than sheep or as dumb as sheep. Sheep are easy prey for predators. 
but sheep we are. And the psalmist invites us to praise the Lord and worship the Lord. Why? Number one, because he is the Lord, verse one. Because he's God in verse 3. He's the creator in verse 3. He owns us in verse 3. He is the shepherd in verse 3. In this verse, worship comes alive. We learn that the Lord is God, which means he dwells in high places. The Lord is God. If you go to the outer atmosphere, he's there. If you go to the end of the solar system, he's there. If you go to the end of the galaxy, he's there. If you go to the end of the universe, he's there. There's no place where he isn't. So we learn, we understand that God is present in places that you will never go. And God is present in places where You always go. Every place that you go, in your mind, in your heart, in the world in which you live, When you travel to the ballpark, he's there. When you travel to school, when you travel to work, wherever you go, the Bible says he is near to us. Willie McDonald said, the psalm breathes gladness and singing instead of dread and fear. The idea being, wherever you go, He's there. And so how do we approach the Lord? Look what it says in verses 4 and 5. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. In the first three verses, God is worshipped as creator. But in these last two verses... I'm going to suggest to you, how can you not see Calvary? Where can we best get a glimpse of God's goodness, of God's everlasting mercy, of truth that endures to all generations? Where in the world are you going to best see that? And according to the New Testament, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, here in his love, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is the sacrifice of Jesus. It's the cross of Jesus. It's his death for sin. It's the blood of Jesus. It is that sacrifice that secures blessing and ensures victory and sanctifies the benefactor who has wisely trusted the Savior. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul plums the depth of the mysteries in Ephesians 3, 4, the blessings and unsearchable riches in chapter 3, verse 8, the fullness of Christ in chapter 4, verse 13, that eventually results in the kingdom of Christ in Ephesians 4, 5, but also Colossians 1, 13. And so here is this sense in which it is in the life and the ministry and the death of Jesus that we see all the reasons to be thankful. 
to know that his mercy is everlasting, that his truth endures to all generations. The generation that went before me and the generation that will come after me. It was Billy Graham who said, God didn't call me to preach to the generation that came before me. He didn't call me to preach to the generation that came after me. He called me to preach to this generation. Guess what? Where you are right now, that's what you're responsible for. The people that you know, not the people you don't know. In verse 4, we come to him thankfully. In the psalm, the Lord's people arrive at the future temple where Messiah is king. And there is, by the way, this overwhelming sense of gratitude because for the Jew, the constant question has been, when will you come? When will you Restore the kingdom. When will you make everything that's wrong right? And it's on the occasion of this psalm that that happens. There was a man named James Stewart Hall of England. He described himself as a professional beggar. He had the words, thank you, written on the palm of his right hand. At my age, to get a tattoo is just a cry for help. <laughs> but in the millennial kingdom, the saints may not have tattoos on their hands, but their lips will say, thank you. It'll say, thank you. Ingratitude is a great crime of the heart for those who come to church and attempt to worship. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 4, we're reminded that David appointed the following Levites to lead the people in worship before the ark of the Lord. By asking for his blessing and giving thanks and praise to the Lord God of Israel. In 1 Chronicles 16, 14, I think this is interesting. Certain Levites were literally given the task. Their full-time job, their full-time job was to praise the Lord and thank God on a routine basis. In this simple passage, we learn four elements that make up thankfulness or gratitude or appreciation. Number one, we remember what God has done. Number two, we tell others what God has done. Number three, we show what God has done by giving God the glory. When anyone asks the question, why in the world are you so happy? And you say, have I not told you lately? Jesus has forgiven all of my sin. Have you ever literally looked at someone and, well, 
I was at McDonald's and I was just, I was just overcome with the reality that Jesus had forgiven me my sin. And the person at McDonald's looked at me and says, why are you so happy? And I looked at him and I said, I'm not going to hell. Sometimes it just leaks out. And number four, offering gifts of self and time and resources, true thanks will manifest in what you actually do. And so in verse five, we commune with him thoughtfully. The Lord is good, it says, to all that he has made. The Lord is merciful. And so again, for those who question his goodness or mercy, for those who are suspicious that maybe God isn't as good as the Bible claims he is, I would offer in testimony and evidence Jesus. We know that God is good because he said, I'm not going to leave you in, your, in sin. I'm not going to leave you abandoned. I'm not going to leave you forsaken. I'm not going to leave you without hope. I am going to send Jesus. And so, we commune with God thoughtfully and we consider Jesus truthfully. The Bible invites us to change the way we think about God by thinking about God in terms of what Jesus has done and his identity. The psalmist said, and his truth endures to all generations. It was Aldous Huxley who was famous for being a skeptic and a critic and an unbeliever. And he famously said, quote, facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored, unquote. Facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored. And the fact is that God has sent Jesus and guess what? He's died on the cross. And guess what? It is not just a religious belief, but it is a historical fact that Jesus has come back to life. This ancient song was an invitation for the people of the world to enter into the gates of the sanctuary, to submit and yield to the true and the living God, to share in his benefits. It was the venerable Bible teacher, G. Campbell Morgan. He wrote on this passage, he said, quote, this is the true position and witness of God's chosen people according to his purpose for them and through them for others. It is a glimpse of glory not realized by the ancient people. They never learned how to invite the outsider into the place of privilege because of their failure to do this. Israel is an earthly scattered and peeled. The church, the spiritual Israel fulfills or ought to fulfill this function, unquote. And I certainly don't share his view that the church is spiritual Israel. I do not subscribe to what's been called replacement theology, but I do share the good doctor's view that ancient Israel was negligent in bringing the outsider into the place of privilege. And the reason why this becomes important is because you've been given a great privilege. It's time for us to bring the outsider so that they become insiders. People can be saved. Their sins can be forgiven. 
Hope can be restored. Jerusalem was supposed to be the place where people could seek and find God. That's why Jesus drove out the money changers. That's why he said, you will not make my house a house of merchandise, but a house of prayer. The church is the place where people should be able to come and say, hey, you know what? These people really believe that Jesus is present. The church of Jesus Christ should be the place where we worship the Lord in covenant, in spirit, in truth. And so the Lord is the song. And we're the singers in verses 1 and 2. The Lord is the maker. And we're his creatures in verse 3. The Lord is the shepherd. And we're his sheep in verse 3. The Lord is the one who is the blessed one. And we are the ones who are blessed. That's verse 4. The Lord is love. And we're the ones who are loved in verse 5. So how do we approach the Lord? How do we lay hold of the Lord? How do we appreciate the Lord? We shout joyfully. Because our sins are forgiven. We serve gladly. Because Jesus is the Savior. He is the King. We sing praise that's due to him. And why should we praise him? Because he's the Lord, because he's God, because he's the creator, because he's our owner, because he's the shepherd, because he's good, because his mercy is everlasting, and because his truth endures to every generation. Samuel Medley said, All worlds his glorious power confess. His wisdom, all his works express. But oh, his love, what tongue can tell? Our Jesus has done all things well. Everything he said he would do, 